You are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Uh, really grateful to see you. I know we're a week from Christmas Eve, which is a Sunday, and we'll get to that in a second, but it's good to see you. So I'm praying for you, many of you who are traveling over this next week to see family, friends, all that good stuff. I do right here at the outset want to say a special thank you to Joy, who may have stepped out, um, our children's director, and uh, Ashton Bryson, Emily Corley, anybody else that helped out yesterday getting this room transformed into a, a different atmosphere for our kids' Christmas party. It was really, really great. If you see some sprinkles around, uh, we tried to vacuum it all up, but who knows? Um, if you're hungry, go for it, uh, whatever. But it was a lot of fun, and we were able to talk about the gospel and just really hang out with our kids, which is, which is really, really great. I also want to remind you, uh, if you are new or if you haven't gotten one already, um, this is not what I need, but in the back is on the back table back there under the Engage little picture is a personal spiritual rhythms guide for you to have. Um, we are trekking through Luke for the better part of this coming year, and there's a reading plan attached to that that we want to be following along together with so that you are prepared coming in here having been in the word that we're going to be preaching on each Sunday and just ready to hear from the Holy Spirit as you've been hearing throughout the week. So grab one of those as you leave. Would love uh, for you to do that and trek along with us. Uh, But this week we come to our uh, fourth uh, and and last Sunday in chapter one of the Gospel of Luke. We spent four weeks in this one chapter really encountering a God who, who makes massive promises all throughout this chapter. A God who promised two women, one barren, well past the age of childbearing, who had no children, the second a a virgin, who biologically has not partaken in any practice to have any children, and he promises these two women sons. A son promised to Elizabeth, this barren, older woman we looked at over the last couple of weeks would serve as the greatest prophet and forerunner of the second son, Jesus, the Messiah who would be the fulfillment of all the promises made to David and his family, the one who would come and save his people from their sins. And the way Luke has really composed his narrative in this first chapter and into the second chapters we're going to see on Christmas Eve is he's really used kind of parallelism to tell this story. You know, it goes back and forth between Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary. You have Gabriel visit Zechariah Then you have Gabriel visit Mary, and then Mary sings her song, and then as we're going to see today, Zechariah sings his song, and we see this week that John is born to Elizabeth. Next week, we'll see Jesus is born to Mary. It's kind of back and forth parallelism that runs throughout this first chapter, and this week, with the birth of John, we begin to see these massive promises fulfilled, Now, this account really brings to the forefront the fulfillment of God's word here in chapter one and all the joy that follows from that. And one of the main themes that we're going to see rise to the top here in these final verses of chapter one is this theme of mercy. Mercy. And we use that word uh, in, in a variety of ways in just our common everyday speak to describe the care, compassion being shown to someone or a group of people, oftentimes in spite of them deserving it. 
I think about uh, my, my grandma from rural North Georgia, uh, the foothills of the Appalachians, Cleveland, Georgia. She would always go shopping with my mom around the holiday season. We would go visit them for Christmas. We'd always go to her house before Christmas, come home for Christmas, and then head to my other grandparents after Christmas. Maybe you have a similar rhythm. But I distinctly remember her recounting her uh, shopping trips with my mom. She would come back after going to the, the Walmarts, is what she called it, the Walmarts. And uh, she would say, Lord, have mercy. There were so many people at the Walmarts, um, a.k.a. like, God, remove this burden from me, a lowly Walmarts shopper uh, navigating these crowds. Like, have mercy on me. Or mercy uh, can be seen oftentimes in a person convicted of a crime, you know, appealing to the judge for a lighter sentence, you know, something given from the judge that, that they may not deserve, namely mercy, uh, being bestowed upon them. Or my sophomore year playing basketball in high school, um, seeing the score against Gulfport High School in South Mississippi just get larger and larger and larger, and our score just gets smaller, stay small the whole time, praying that there was a mercy rule in basketball. But there is not one, by the way. There's not a mercy rule in basketball, and we lost 97 to 15, all right? So um, you remember the losses. You don't remember the wins. You remember the losses. I remember that one very distinctly. It was very embarrassing. I didn't get in the game. I rode the bench, but still, I was on the team. <laughs> I ride the bench of a 15-point team, so you can tell how good I am. Um, you know, parenting has taught me a lot about mercy in a lot of ways. Um, I've had to give a lot of mercy to my kids, and I need mercy for myself when I make terrible decisions as a parent, asking the Lord to remove the consequences of my terrible decision-making, that it doesn't affect my kids too much. But let me give you a brief definition of mercy, and this will be in our notes as we see it here in the Scriptures. Mercy is a word used to describe the care, interest, or empathy one experiences with regards to another person or group. I'm going to repeat it again. It's on the screen for you. It's the word in the scriptures used to describe the care, interest, or empathy one experiences with regards to another person or group. And the apex of this obviously is seen in, in the mercy God exhibits within his own character in the sending of his son, Jesus, to be merciful towards us, gracious towards us, and mercy and grace, they're two good biblical words that are very similar, and yet they have a distinction. And what helps me kind of understand that distinction, we believe that God inherently, intrinsically, is both merciful and gracious. We see that description of him all throughout the scriptures. But to give you kind of a brief distinction of the two that helps me, when we talk about grace, you know, we are discussing primarily the idea of receiving something from God's hand that we do not deserve. Right? It's, it's receiving of God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve that, but yet he gives it to us in his gracious capacity. It's kind of a positive sense. Well, mercy, on the other hand, is, is not receiving something that we do deserve. So grace is a bestowing of something we don't deserve. Mercy is with a withholding of something that we do deserve, namely the justice and the wrath of God for our sin. So God is merciful towards us. He's gracious and he's merciful. So in a way, you're receiving something in both, but the receiving of mercy is more passive. You're receiving mercy because he's withholding from you. Does that make sense? Tracking with me so far? Cool. And there are three ways in our text for this morning, three ways that mercy is described in our verses. And the first way is that the mercy of God is great. 
mercy of God is great. We see this manifest in our text through the birth narrative of John, verses 57 to 66. So I want to read it for us again. Love for you to follow along with me. Luke 1, 57 to 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy. There it is, great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So Elizabeth gives birth to John to the rejoicing of many of her neighbors, which is a fulfillment of of Gabriel's words to Zechariah back in verse 14, that many would rejoice at John's birth. So you have many people now rejoicing at John's birth. And following Jewish custom, according to Genesis chapter 17, Leviticus chapter 12, they circumcise John on the eighth day. And apparently they have a, a naming ceremony that goes along with this circumcision ceremony. And the neighbors are eager to hear what the name is going to be of this miracle baby, this baby that was not supposed to be here, that was given as a gift of God's grace to Elizabeth in her old age. Would it be Zechariah Jr.? I mean, that's, you know, they're looking for a family name here. Would he be named after Abijah or Aaron? You know, these priestly lines that Elizabeth and Zechariah come from. You know, it's the same approach many of us take in naming our kids. You know, my first name is Edwin. If you knew that or not, Edwin. It's my dad's name. It's my grandfather's name. It is now my name. You know, our kids, you know, Riley Holland Baker. Holland is Christine's maiden name. Or Noel Ann Baker, Ellie for short. Ellie Ann Baker. Ann is my mom's middle name. So we, we do this with our children. Maybe you have children that are named after people in your families. Names being passed down. It's the same thing that's going on right here. So the neighbors here are expecting the same thing. But to their surprise, Elizabeth says his name is John. And the neighbors, they, they refuse to accept this from Elizabeth. So they go to Zechariah. And they make signs to him, which seems to imply, you know, we, we hear that Zechariah can't speak, but this here seems to also imply that he's also deaf, making signs to him. Hey, what, what are you going to name your son? What are you going to name him? And he writes on a writing tablet, his name is John. Not, not will be John, but his name is John. You know, it's almost like Zechariah rests in the accomplished fact that their son has been named already by God himself, which he was. Gabriel visited him earlier in the chapter. And upon this, Zechariah regains his speech, blesses God, and fear and awe come upon all those in attendance. And the conversation begins to trickle its way up in the hill country of Judea This miracle about this miracle baby and wondering what kind of life this kid would lead. Now, the mercy of God is, is, uh, is great. And there are at least three ways that his mercy is elevated in this account regarding the birth of John. First, 
his mercy is great, and that the reproach of Elizabeth is taken away. It's taken away. He bestows his mercy upon her. We talked about this briefly a couple of weeks ago, that being childless in that culture would have been a huge stigma. You know, so much of blessing from God was associated with having children. So if you had no children, there was a, an idea in the minds of many people that you must be under the curse of God, or he must be displeased with you. So Elizabeth is experiencing the great mercy of God and that her reproach is now gone. It's taken away. Second, with regards to Zechariah, the mercy of God is great and that his faith has obviously been strengthened through his months, nine months of silence. He hasn't spoken for nine months. You know, his lack of faith, if you remember, his lack of faith in Gabriel's words brought this judgment upon him. But his first words after nine months of not being able to speak and potentially not being able to hear as well are not words of bitterness and resentment. You know, they're not words uh, where he begins to question God or accuse God of any wrongdoing. His first words are words of blessing, are words of praise. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of amazing what God can teach us if we just stop talking sometimes. If we just put our hands over our mouths and quit sharing our own thoughts and just listen to what God would have to say to us. That's why this coming year, you know, we really want to press into setting aside time in our regular routines for silence and solitude. Just getting quiet and alone with the Lord, listening with our, with our hearts and our minds and our, our ears, rather than talking with our mouths. Zechariah had his world upended for nine months. And in that nine months of silence, God produced a song, which we're going to see here in just a second. And then another aspect of God's great mercy being highlighted here is that the experience of his mercy produced collective joy. Collective joy. Zechariah and Elizabeth were not the only ones who experienced God's mercy through the birth of their son. The whole community rejoiced with them. It's this visual of what Paul tells us in Romans 12 to, to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those, or to rejoice with those who rejoice, right? To be united to one another, not only in our sorrows, but also in our joys. And I've said this before, and I truly believe it. Sometimes it's a lot harder to rejoice with those who rejoice than weep with those who weep, especially when those rejoicing have what you want. It's easy to share one another's brokenness. But what if somebody gets something you've been praying for for a long, long time? Now, there's potential that with these neighbors rejoicing with Elizabeth and Zechariah, maybe there were some mothers there that were longing for babies. And maybe it was harder for them to rejoice, but they chose to do it anyway. We share in each other's joys and we share in each other's burdens. It's what we do as the body of Christ. Now, mercy is, is not only intended to be experienced by families and individuals, but collectively, collectively as a people. If God chooses to be merciful to you individually, to demonstrate his care towards you, then we all need to hear it and share in it together. So mercy produces collective joy. So the mercy of God's great. Second, second, the mercy of God was promised. The mercy of God was promised. You know, the song Zechariah sings is, is in two parts. First part, verses 68 to 75, is a blessing with God as the object. 
The second part, verses 76 to 79, turn into a, a hymn of honor towards John. His father is prophesying over him with his words. But all of it's undergirded by Zechariah being filled with the Holy Spirit there in verse 67. This is the fourth time the Holy Spirit is explicitly mentioned in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. If you remember back in verse 15, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, tells Zechariah that, that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. You see the Holy Spirit intervening in the birth of Jesus with Mary and the conception of Jesus. You see Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit back in verse 41 before she makes her declaration to Mary. And then you see here Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit and composing this song. Now we're going to be uh, constructing a theology of the Holy Spirit as we make our way through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to kind of piecemeal it together as we see it and him, see him in the Gospel of Luke because we're going to see him a lot. Now, I've even considered, uh, throughout my study of Luke so far, I've even considered stopping. We, you know, we stop in June and July each year to take a break from our going through the book and do kind of mini-sermon series in June and July because we have such a transient church that's traveling and all those things. And I've even considered doing a sermon series on the Holy Spirit, maybe this June or July, just who is he and what does he do and what is his role in the church. But I think the Holy Spirit is oftentimes forgotten, the forgotten third member of the Trinity, especially for those of us who grew up maybe in more conservative, traditional backgrounds. But a couple of things here, just to keep in mind at this point in the narrative of Luke that we're going to consider, we need to consider when it comes to being filled with the Holy Spirit, that language being filled with the Holy Spirit. The first thing is, is let's remember where we are at this point in redemptive history. Now, we're still in the Old Covenant at this point in the narrative, right? I mean, Jesus has not yet been born, He's not lived a perfect life, died the death we deserve to die, risen from the dead, ascended back to the Father. He has not yet sent the Spirit, as he talks about in John chapter, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. The Spirit and the narrative and the position of the redemptive history we're at right now in Luke chapter 1 was still kind of this Old Testament kind of approach to the Holy Spirit. It's more transient in the Old Testament. You know, he didn't yet indwell believers like he would after Christ has ascended to the Father. So that's kind of where we're at, operating under these old covenant kind of stipulations and guidelines. And in the old covenant, when we have instances like this in the Old Testament where somebody's filled with the Spirit, it's usually for the sake of empowerment or delivering a prophetic word in a given circumstance to an individual or a people. The Spirit emboldened and put words into the mouths of men and women for a specific purpose, oftentimes. So the Spirit here in our text for this in text uh, in chapter one fills Elizabeth earlier to say what she was going to say to Mary over John. And then the Spirit here fills Zechariah to bless and prophesy over John to these people present. So as we move through Luke, we're going to be putting more and more pieces together and forming this holistic theology of the Holy Spirit. But suffice to say at this point, the Spirit is very active in the Gospel of Luke, and he's filling up his people in really unique ways. But let's read again verses 67 to 75, and let's hear what Zechariah does say about this mercy of God that was promised. This is verse, starting in verse 67. 
And John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. There it is, mercy promised to our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Promise mercy, verse 72. It was mercy that was promised. But what were the promises exactly? Well, let's look at them real quick. Verse 69, salvation was promised. You know, this, this picture of a horn of, sal- <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> excuse me. horn of salvation in the house of David being raised up communicated this picture of strength, you know, a mighty salvation. You know, horns were this picture of mighty animals that would use their horns to engage in battle, to overpower their enemies. So God was gonna act in his might and strength to bring salvation to his people. He was going to deliver his people from their enemies. You see that in verses 71 and 74. So a horn of salvation, a merciful horn of salvation was promised to his people. But God also promised in his mercy to remember his covenant forever. You know, all of these references to past promises, they continue to communicate this this promise fulfillment theme that runs throughout the gospel of Luke. As God promised, so he will fulfill. You see that in verse 69, referencing the house of David. Verse 70, bringing to mind the words spoken to the holy prophets of old. Verses 72 and 73, the mercy was promised to their fathers. God will remember his holy covenant, the promises he made to Abraham. God remembering is an act of God's mercy. You know, all of the current and coming fulfillment of God's promises and his actions in history are rooted in past history and past promises. Real words spoken to a real people by a committed, faithful God who is always true to his word. And then third, his mercy, promised, uh, his mercy is promised to create a fearless, holy people devoted to service. A fearless, holy people devoted to service. Our salvation, our, our, salvation, our deliverance, our redemption has a purpose, Verses 74 and 75, read it with me again. That we being delivered from our enemies, here's the purpose clause, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You know, that language used there is very priestly language. You know, serving before the Lord, that phrase serving before the Lord was was oftentimes the phrase used to describe the work of the priests in the tabernacle and in the temple in the Old Testament. So God is saving us. Listen, God is saving us and producing in us the character required, holiness and righteousness, for the purpose of priestly work all our days. That's the language the apostle Peter uses to describe the church as a kingdom of priests, right? But does that mean that we're all gonna quit our jobs and now enter into full-time vocational ministry? Well, no, we're not. We don't need a bunch of pastors here. We need you to be in the community working and honoring God with the gifts and skills he's given you. But it does mean 
that God will actively be using us in one another's lives as a means of grace, administering the work of the priestly work of God to one another all of our days. That's what we did last week. If you were with us last week, you know, some of you in this room, you were very open and honest and brave and courageous enough to just indicate, raise your hands and indicate that this Christmas season has been really hard for you. You know, for whatever reason, joy has just been elusive from you this season. And many of you indicated that. And so what did we do? You all gathered around the people with their hands raised, laid hands on them, and prayed for them. You mediated God's grace for one another, doing the priestly work before the Lord to one another. And then right after that, you went to the other side of the spectrum. So we have men and women in this congregation who are really struggling right now. We went to the other side and said, does anybody have any stories of God's grace in your life over these last couple of weeks that anybody would like to share? And a handful of you guys came up to the microphone and you shared things God has been doing in your life just on the spot. And that's good stuff because the people who raise their hands, who are struggling right now, need to hear that God is still working that God is still moving, that God is still active. And so again, you're mediating God's grace to one another through the priestly work before the Lord. That's what God is creating in us. That's why he saved us, is to be those people to one another, to mediate his grace to one another because of Christ Jesus. So the mercy of God is, is great. The mercy of God is promised. And then third, the mercy of God is tender. It's tender. Read with me again verses 76 to 79. And you, child, talking about John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy, there it is, tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Tender mercy of our God, verse 78. It's almost like Zechariah singing a song, and, and at this point in the song, he turns to his son, his newborn son that he shouldn't have right now, but he's right there, flesh and bone, son. And just the thanksgiving to God just pours out through his prophetic words regarding John. You know, there's been no prophet at this point. There's been no prophet in Israel for 400 years. So the fact that Zechariah calls John the, the prophet of the Most High is a massive deal. And John's role is really twofold, according to this song. One, he's to prepare the way for the Messiah. And two, he's to give knowledge of salvation for God's people. And the underlying reason John is sent is because the Lord is merciful. Because he's merciful. You know, the Greek word translated there, tender, that word tender, if you have an ESV, if you're following along, is the Greek word splagna. It's a fun word. Splagna. It's a word used to describe the, the center of the affections, like the, the bowels of the affections, the guts, like the innermost parts of the affections. It's communicating this idea that the mercy of God bestows on us is from the deepest parts of who he is. It's not surfacy, but it's out of the depths 
of his insides that he demonstrates this tender mercy towards his people. It's the word used to describe how Jesus felt before feeding the 5,000 when he looked out over the people and, and he had compassion on them. That word compassion is the same word, splagna, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Empathy, compassion for them, deep, deep mercy. And it's a very strong word to communicate that God's compassion for his people comes from the deepest recesses of who he is. The innermost parts. It's not just a mercy that just like trickles out like a leaky faucet that needs to be fixed. But it's a, a mercy that literally explodes out of him like, like Old Faithful or, or Mount Vesuvius. This mercy of God that's not an afterthought. Now, it's not like God saves us in his grace and mercy. And then when he, when he realizes how slow we are to believe and how quick we are to forget, he's like, oh, man, I, I've already committed to him. I guess I just have to keep giving him mercy. That's not our Lord. His mercy flows out of the very depths of who he is. And he delights for it to gush out towards his people. And it's out of this, uh, it's out of this tender and compassionate, it's the splagna mercy that the Messiah will come to his people like the sunrise, ending our darkness and shadows and grief and hopelessness and guiding our path to peace. You know, Riley was a December baby. Maybe many of you have had children in December. I remember in the depths of those early days when, when nobody's sleeping and we're all stinking tired and it's freezing outside and the nights are so long and the days are so short. You're half awake, getting that bottle at 2, 3 in the morning, and you just stink, I thought. Daylight is never going to come. It's been dark for so long and I've been awake for so long. It's never coming. And every morning, as the sun peeked out over that old Methodist church that we could see, you know, out of our window, just remember the relief, just literally the relief in just seeing the light, that the night was over, that we did it one more day, and we made it through another night, and the darkness was gone, the light brought hope. The light brought joy and the light brought much thanksgiving. It's this picture of Micah, Micah, prophet Micah, chapter 7, verse 8, where he writes, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. The words of Isaiah 9, 2. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them, a light has shone. And that light is Christ Jesus. Which leads to the last point here. The mercy of God is the foundation of our redemption. And we ran past the verse real quickly. I want to go back to it's verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, this verse indicates the entire reason for this song to be sung in the first place was a celebration of a God who visits in order to redeem. 
You know, in the Old Testament, when God would visit his people, it served one of two purposes. It was either wonderful and redemptive, full of salvation, or it was, a tra- it was tragic as he brought discipline or judgment upon his people. But you never knew when he was going to visit. Those days of the Lord you read about in the Old Testament. You just knew at some point he was going to be dropping in. And so you wanted to be ready. You wanted to be prepared. But the Lord desired to do more than just visit. God desired to dwell. God sent Jesus to take on flesh and dwell among his people, to tabernacle among his people. That's John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He desired to take up residence among his people. The visitor became a resident. But he didn't simply want to be a resident among his people. But he desired to become a resident within his people. Inside of his people, not just to dwell with, but to dwell in. But in order to do so, as with any visitor who decides to become a resident, a price had to be paid. A dwelling place needed to be redeemed, needed to be bought, needed to be paid for. And so our God, great God, full of great mercy, in order to move from visitor to inhabitant, He sent his son to pay the price of our redemption with his very blood. A price no one else could pay for no other blood was costly enough. And he has turned us into temples of the Holy Spirit. So where the father initiates, the son incarnates, and the spirit populates. And now all of us who have been redeemed and ransomed and purchased by the precious blood of Jesus, our redemption price, the Spirit of God has now taken up residence in us. And God continues to demonstrate his great promise, tender mercy to us through the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. His mercy truly is more. His mercies are new every morning. You may feel like you are sitting in darkness right now. You may feel like your life is anything but peace this morning. But the Lord, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, desires to gush out his compassion and mercy upon you and bring you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He delights, he delights to show us mercy, church. He delights in it. And we wait. You know, in the second advent, second visitation, we wait in the second advent for a second visitation of our king. Not this time, not the coming king as a baby in humility, but a king in glory. And upon this next visit, he will finally and fully redeem us from all the effects of darkness and lead us into eternal life, into eternal peace. You know, his love for us, church, his love for us is deep. It's full of grace and mercy, so may it produce in us many songs for his glory and for our good. Let's pray together. Father, we love you.
you're so undeserving of your grace and yet fully deserving of your wrath and yet you chose to be merciful towards us. Not because you had to, not because you because you felt compelled to do so, but solely because it is intrinsically in your nature to be gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You're so good to us. You love us so deeply, more deeply than we will ever know. Your mercy comes from the depths of your being, from the fibers, from the guts of who you are. May we not spurn it. May we not overlook it. May we rest in the fact that regardless of what we brought in the room, that your mercies truly are new every morning. That your grace and your mercy are enough to cover our sin, to set us free, to give us new life and purpose, to set us apart as a kingdom of priests, to minister to one another and to this community and this city with your grace that you've put in us through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for this season, for its constant reminder that that you did desire to dwell with us, and it's true that you now dwell in us. Praise be to God. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen.